Welcome to Health Yeah. I'm Jack Ayers. I'm Rachel Loader. And I'm Kate Dixon. This is a podcast by health professionals and students for health professionals and students. Keeping you in the know on health policy happenings in Kansas and beyond. The dose was recorded on February 25th and the COVID-19 update on March 28th. Just as in medicine, the world of policy evolves quickly and things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. In an effort to keep you all updated on COVID-19 here in Kansas, we're substituting the tea and hot take this week with a COVID-19 update from Dr. Alan Greiner once again. Um, and he's going to be joined by Dr. Joseph Lamaster, MD, MPH. He's a professor here at KUMC. Um, just like Dr. Greiner, he wears a lot of hats around Kansas City and beyond. Um, but today he's speaking as the health advisor and public health officer of the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment. So we're hoping to have Dr. Lamaster give us a little bit about what's going on in Johnson County and then Dr. Greiner giving us another update of what's going on in Wyandotte. Today we have Dr. Lamaster and Dr. Greiner. Thank you guys both so much for being with us today. Um, Dr. Greiner, you are the Wyandotte County Health Department Officer. What's the official title? That's right. Health Officer, Wyandotte County, Unified Government, Kansas City, Kansas. And Dr. Lamaster, you run things in Johnson County, that's correct? I'm actually Dr. Greiner's offsider in Johnson County. So we're both technically by the state called health advisors, but we're also legally the public health officers in each of those two counties. Yes. Wonderful. Okay, do you guys mind each giving us an update on the on cases and deaths, what's going on with COVID-19 in each of those counties? Sure, I can go first. So we have, as of today, 43 positive confirmed cases, four deaths in, in Wyandotte County. We, we still feel like our testing capacity has, has been limited, so we suspect that there are probably thousands more cases than that. So the number 43 is probably not super representative of, of what's going on. Um, we've been doing in addition to the testing, we've been doing a, a symptom self-reporting tool on our county website, and we have about 95 responses on that and think that about almost half of those people would, would be considered probably cases if we had more capacity to test them. We're working hard to try to ramp that testing capacity up. Um, but we are seeing in the two hospitals in Wyandotte County increasing numbers of individuals who are suspected, and we are seeing an increase in the number of individuals in the ICUs and on ventilators. So we've got, um, right now, there's still capacity in the hospital, but we have more than a handful of individuals who are in, in both hospitals in ICUs, and, and we think that will probably continue to increase going forward. And Dr. Greiner, are people who are symptomatic uh, or suspected to, that they might uh, could have test positive, are they sent to KU Med typically if they're in Wyandotte County? Well, it depends. We, we encourage people who have symptoms to contact their regular health care provider. If they don't have a regular health care provider, we have a little system going on with some of the safety net clinics in Wyandotte County where we have an information call in line and, and the potential to get people tested who do not have 
any regular healthcare provider, but we really encourage people to, to talk to their regular healthcare provider because honestly, if they're not really, really sick and they have mild or moderate symptoms, we want them to really stay at home and not be around other people. And especially we don't want them necessarily coming into a healthcare facility. So we're not encouraging everybody to come in, but, but of course, if people get really sick, we, they do need to, you know, utilize the emergency rooms and the emergency services through 911. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of varies depending on the person and what their situation is. And I'm sure Dr. LeMaster has similar stuff going on in Johnson County. Yeah, could you give us an update on Johnson County, Dr. LeMaster? Sure. Um, we were this morning, I think, at 80 cases uh, tested thus far positive. Um, Johnson has a, a similar approach to the way we're doing testing, and that is that we're testing mostly those people that are symptomatic and giving priority to those that have got multiple diseases, like, you know, have uh, who are sort of older individuals who are higher risk and also those that are first uh, responder uh, community people because we need to know um, if they're positive since they're on the front lines of caregiving in the county. Um, Johnson has a number of different healthcare systems, uh, which includes uh, Menorah and Overland Park Regional Medical Center and Shawnee Mission and St. Luke's South. So the, and these are all private hospitals. Uh, a lot of KU people also come from Johnson County. I think we've had two deaths so far. Uh, so it's it's fairly similar to Wyandotte County. They had they are, I think, just a little bit ahead in terms of the number of cases and deaths. But remember that Johnson County is also four times bigger than Wyandotte County in terms of its population. So it's it's quite significantly, there's a significantly higher number of people there. So um in many ways, quite similar. Gotcha. Um, so you guys both wear a ton of hats within KUMC and obviously beyond. What has your day-to-day -day looked like in this role? Um, it's been a little crazy. For me, it's basically been shifting from doing anything at KU Med Center to just basically being at the county health department every day for the last couple of weeks um we've got a lot going on and and i and i know they do in johnson county too but um we our health department in wyandotte county is a little short staffed so in terms of doing phone calls to to positive cases and their contacts we've been we've got a small team working on that and so we've been working to coordinate that and then we're also trying to coordinate a lot of volunteer services folks are are interested in helping out and we really appreciate that we've actually got something on the Wyandotte County website where people can go in there and click to say they'd like to volunteer we have a a food distribution project going on now with this nonprofit called cross lines that's in Kansas City, Kansas and so older adults and individuals that report um, that they don't have enough food we've got that going with volunteers and then we're also, like I said, doing this symptom self-reporting activity through our website. So we're following up with all those individuals to make sure that they they need health care and don't have a provider. We can connect them with one. And then 
also give them some guidance on on what they might need to do. So we we kind of have this little operations center that we work out of at, at the health department, and that's basically what I've been doing every day for the past couple of weeks, which is not not my normal. So it's a lot a lot of stuff has been different. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Doctor Lamaster? Is it kind of the same thing down in Johnson? Yeah, it's a little bit different at Johnson just because Johnson's a bigger health department. So the contact tracing work, which has continued uh, to go on with the positive cases that we're aware of from Johnson, um, has been, uh, we have a staff there that's doing that and some some people that are experienced in doing that, doing that. So I haven't had to be so involved in that direct work. There, The the biggest thing I think that probably both of us have been doing, and I'm dealing with it as well has been the interpretation of the um the stay-at-home order that we both put into place uh, this last week um and that now is superseded by the governor's uh, stay-at-home order which just came out today and will go into effect i think uh, midnight on sunday so you know each of us had um i was getting calls basically 20 to 30 a day at, from businesses uh, wanting clarification about whether or not they were an essential business or not, and having to make some kind of adjudication as though I was a judge or something about how to sort of make that work. It was pretty interesting uh, work, but I'm glad to be done with it. Uh, I think that that's, there's other people other than uh, you know me that are probably better to do that, and I'm very happy for the governor to be taking it on with her staff. Um, the other thing that of course, that's been happening has been interacting with the. We have a new uh, a public health director in the in Johnson County, so he has come in in the middle of all of this and is trying to uh, get things set up. I think the main things that we're trying to figure out, all of us together, will be uh, to get a better handle on the data that we need to guide. Um, the mitigation strategies that are in place now. I think we're. I don't think there's any doubt on anybody's part that that we have done the right thing to put these strategies in place. But there is increasingly, uh, you know, and will increasingly be pressure, especially from the business community, uh, to lift them as soon as possible. So we have to have data in place, which includes both mon- a, a way to be able to accurately monitor what's going on in terms of our critical care capacity in the hospitals across the region, as well as um, what's happening in terms of the number of cases that are emerging. Because we're not s- testing everybody, uh, you know, we're not doing sam- sampling in the community uh, general generally to find out how many asymptomatic cases we think there are out there. We're mostly just sim- t- testing the more the sicker of the symptomatic. We don't really know uh, what proportion of the population is infected right now, but we do know who is getting symptomatic and, and so we, and who's in, ending up getting admitted to the ICU. So we need to be able to track on that because that has a lot of impact on, uh, on whether or not the healthcare system will get overwhelmed or not. So we're hoping uh, that by putting all these mitigation strategies in place, we're going to be, uh, a step ahead of the virus, and I, I'm and I'm very hopeful in that. If we can get everybody to actually uh, comply with the orders, right? 
And so in designing these strategies and talking about mitigation, can either of you shine some light on what kind of governing bodies or organizations that you coordinate with in making these decisions regarding like infectious disease spread and what does that look like for you in your positions? So this is Alan, I, you know, in, in my position, um, we've got really close collaboration with the city county government in Wyandotte County, Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas, many years ago, it's probably been 17, 18 years ago, they merged the city and county governments there. So that there's one entity that, that represents both the county and the city. And it, it actually makes my job easier because we do have two other small cities in the county, Bonner Springs um, and Baser, Linwood. Um, so we have two other municipalities, but it helps streamline things. And so I can work with the mayor and the county manager and all the staff that that are involved in in all the sort of governance and public service activities, you know, entities like the, the police force and the sheriff and the fire department, which also runs the emergency medical management services. And, and so we've all been meeting like at least twice a day, every day for the past two weeks in, in these conference calls wow. and, and trying to coordinate. We, you know, we have county commissioners and they've been involved. We'd have, we've had two meetings with them in the last two weeks but in a lot of ways, they rely on the day-to-day -day staff doing doing governmental services to to kind of guide things. And and I think Dr. Lemaster, you know, probably has had similar experience. A lot of some of this decision making, at least in terms of the laws that are in place, falls to the health officer to make a determination. But I think we're trying to work with our our various city and governmental entities to make sure that we're doing things that can be enforced and that can be supported and that everybody's on, on board with. So it's, it's required a lot of meetings and a lot of effort, I think on, on both of our parts, but, um, and we've had a lot of cross, uh, County work and even cross state work with coordinating with Kansas City, Missouri and Jackson County. We had some, some, a bunch of meetings last Thursday and Friday and then had our joint press conference on Saturday. So there's, there's been a lot of coordination work going on and I, I, I feel like across the Metro it's, it's been pretty good in terms of communication and collaboration. And, and I, I hope that continues and hopefully it'll, it'll really help us make an impact and not have really bad results from this whole pandemic. So it's a little different in Johnson only because Johnson's like the opposite in terms of the unified government. I guess you could call it was the disunified government. <laughs> there are about 20 municipalities in Johnson County and each of them have got their own mayor, their own city council. And so the overall board of commissioners is the board of health for the whole county, but the, they are reluctant to make decisions without um, without circling back to all of their uh, chamber of commerce and their mayors and, and their city managers in each of the different areas. And they want to have 
meetings also with the different hospital systems and the, the chief medical officers in each of the different places, uh, as well as city and fire uh, that are different in all those places with, you know, overall county leadership, but individual um, individual departments in each of those. So that meant just a, an enormous amount of decision-making and meetings, to, you know, as we've moved all of these things forward. I think it was the, the opposite of easy in terms of, of, of trying to get everybody in line. But I think, and I think, you know, that we, that having said that everybody did come in and has confirmed what we're doing and we are all on the same uh, page. I think it's important also for people to know that we did, you know, look at these, um, at, at these stay-at-home orders that we have now, and we debated them quite vigorously among ourselves too before we made the decision. We didn't just all kind of jump into it. We we debated it quite quite significantly before coming to that uh, that decision. So it wasn't done uh, lightly in any way. Um, but I think now we're now we're doing it. You know, we're all on the same page. We're trying to compare notes with each other and trying to all stay on the same page. It it could be a little more challenging now as we as we go into a statewide uh, stay-at-home order, which is being run out of the governor's office because we have less uh, freedom. We were before trying to harmonize what we're doing across the different county lines so that we're pretty much all in the same place with it. Now we have a little bit less freedom to be able to do that because the governor's order will supersede anything that we do uh, or have done locally. And so possibly uh, the the Kansas City, Missouri, and Jackson County people be able to track along with that. And I think they probably will try and do that as much as they can. But um, anyway. So, I mean, it sounds like there's been a lot of intergovernmental agency collaboration, which is at times not always uh, easy to make happen. I'm uh, happy to hear that, 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 that that's happened largely. And even this, it's been a challenge to get there. But, you know, if we look forward and we think about what we can take from the situation we're in with the pandemic, apply that to future situations, both those that might be uh, public health related um, uh, or, or or not even uh, necessarily in that arena, but to talk about this collaboration. Um, generally speaking, uh, we'd like to ask both of you, how do you think that we can use some of what we learned here in this season to strengthen the health system um, at, at, at the local level and also um, just generally speaking, how can how can we learn from the situation? How can this be beneficial to us uh, moving forward? Well, I'm certainly hopeful that all this communication and coordination can can lead to some sort of sustained activity that even once once we get this COVID nineteen behind us, we realize that we are all interconnected and we do realize I think nowadays that so many of our health outcomes are driven by the social determinants of health that in the healthcare system, sometimes we think, well, we can't, we can't do anything about those social determinants of health. It's our job to, to treat medical problems and, and conditions. But I think as a, as a metropolitan area and across both the States of Missouri and Kansas, I think that this might be a unique opportunity to say, Hey, this is really good that we're all talking a lot and, we need to find ways to keep doing that and sustain that so that we can come up with innovative methods to, to help the population be healthier. Um, you know, we eventually, if people have bad health outcomes, they're going to end up utilizing some of the healthcare resources that exist. And we, we know that those are becoming harder and harder to afford for, 
for much, much of this, you know, much of society these days. So I hope this leads to ongoing work to, to address issues besides infectious viruses, but all sorts of topics that we could, we could make a difference on. I think I certainly agree with Alan in that regard completely. I think the other thing that there's several other things that are happening, which are sort of really interesting to me. Um, one of them is that at least in the health system, and I think this is happening across the board in different health systems. I don't think it's just ours, although we're of course intimately connected with it in KU has been the rapid uptake now and change to accommodate uh, telehealth, which of course Dr. Greiner's been a big proponent of for many years. And suddenly everybody's, it's, you know, it's the flavor of the month. Everybody is, is jumping on board with telehealth because we are trying to keep our high risk patients out of the medical center where they might be at risk of getting uh, of getting coronavirus, and that means that the rules for doing uh, telehealth and billing for it have been relaxed. So we're going to see a lot more of that, I think. And I believe that once that's on board, I don't think that we'll see that go away. Because first off, we're going to have to do this now for quite some time. It's not going to be just a couple of weeks that we're going to be doing this telehealth approach. Um, and so it will become part of the warp and woof of how we do medicine, I think, going forward. I think that's, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, the other thing which we have been trying for a long time to put in place, I think ever since I've been involved in public health here in Kansas City, which is now you know going on five, six years, and Dr. Greiner much longer than that, has been trying to establish uh, university uh, public health partnerships for working on uh, these sort of public health problems. Problems, and I think that now is not just a great opportunity to, to do that, but I think there's actually, from the university side, um, a lot of the researchers and other folks who are themselves trapped at home, you know, kind of ready and willing and wanting to collaborate with us in public health to try and address some of these problems and organize themselves into different working groups to try and uh, be helpful and to try and link with us and help us. So that's also very encouraging. And, you know, some of that work I hope will involve students, you know, so we're, it's all a very uh, exciting time to be, uh, to be involved in public health um, and, you know, a great privilege for us to do that um, and to serve the community and, and the university in that way. Yeah, very well said. I think that that is, um, those are all the questions that we have for you guys today. Thank you again. I know you guys' schedules are super, super busy. Rachel, Jack, thank you, you so guys much. Have else? No, thank you both so much for taking the time. I know you probably have about 17 million meetings a day, but we really appreciate getting to pick your brains and broadcasting this. So thank you again. And I think it's important. I think I mentioned this in my email when I asked Dr. LeMaster if he could uh, join us. But, you know, I think it's important that students can hear directly from um, two of the most influential individuals uh, in the Kansas City Metro <laughs> as, you know, uh, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, uh, as Dr. LeMaster says, you're the judge and the jury when it comes to some of these things. And it's, it's really, I think, inspiring to a lot of students that are trying to see what their future could look like as it relates to public health and uh, you two are shining examples of what that could be so we really appreciate you taking the time to engage with us and to share your knowledge and uh your your um passion with the whole community so thank you again thank you you bet thank you keep up the good work with health yeah this is great stuff 
Here comes the dose. Yeah, here comes the dose. With us today for The Dose is Patrick Salih, the CEO of Vibrant Health. Vibrant Health is a network of safety net clinics here in Wyandotte County. Mr. Salih has worked within nonprofits for many years, mostly in fundraising roles, but he also has a lot of experience in business development and operations. We are so excited to have him on today to talk about health in all policies. All right, so Patrick, can you tell us exactly what is an FQHC? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me and and having this discussion about about vibrant health and about about um, public health. Um, so an FQHC is FQHC. The initials stand for Federally Qualified Health Center. It is a designation that has been around from the federal government since the mid '60s. Um, they were they were built and designed um, to serve communities through a governance model and a, a sort of federal grant and payment model that allows and increases access to care in um, underserved communities. So we operate under guidelines from the federal government that range from um, how we're, how our board is structured and governed. So our board is 51% patients. Um, patients of ours are on the board um, out of, I think we have 16 members. So we have um, nine of those members, at least our patients. Um, we operate with a sliding fee scale, which means people that don't have insurance pay a different fee based on their level of income. Um, and so that's one of the guidelines from the federal government on how we have to operate. So there's about 20 different different guidelines um, that we have to abide by and be in compliance with to, to receive that designation. Um, and so along with the designation comes federal grant dollars. So we get about $650,000 of federal money um, to provide care um, to, to families in our community. And then we have access to an increased reimbursement rate from Medicaid. So if you think about um, general reimbursement, um, for most providers, commercial is the highest and Medicare and Works its way down, and Medicaid's a lower reimbursement rate. Um, for FQHCs, it's inverted. So Medicaid is our highest payer by far, and commercial insurance is our lowest. And part of the reason behind that is to incentivize us to, to take care of Medicaid patients where lots of private practice won't. So mm-hmm. um, we also see Medicare, and we take commercial insurance, and then, of course, we see um, uninsured patients. Gotcha. And so you said that there's, obviously, I know that they have changed the reimbursement for FQHCs, but then what percentage we say is that grant money? What is that? What does that comprise for your budget? So we're a seven and a half million dollar budget, and it's six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay. Um, so it really works by the reimbursement. That's kind of how the yeah. So the, so the the. The, the reimbursement is a huge part of it. So we, we get, just a, in general breakdown, um, we get a little over $3 million. It's going to be 3.5 this year probably in, in patient revenue, which would be all reimbursements. Um, and the health, the biggest chunk of that is is Medicaid. Then we get $650,000 in federal grant. And then the balance of the money that we spend, we raise through private philanthropy foundations and oh, such. Okay. So um, there's sort of three big areas of, of revenue. The opportunity, though, and where, where the grant matters is we can, there will, there are additional grant opportunities that come out. So um, there's a big emphasis around opioid addiction and substance abuse. um, And there's a big emphasis around HIV prevention and treatment. And so both are areas where we don't currently have much programming, but as grant opportunities come out from the federal government, we're now in position to apply and essentially do two things. One, offer services that we don't currently offer and expand and grow the federal grant dollars. So lots of FQHCs start at that 650 and grow it to 1.5 to 2 million and, and more over time. Mm-hmm. So speaking of services that Vibrant offers or might offer in the future, can you tell us what kind of 
clinics and services Vibrant provides here in Wyandotte County? Sure. We offer, we have three um, standalone locations. One is in the Argentine neighborhood. Um, one is here at Bethany Medical Building. And one is um, downtown at the Children's Campus right across the street from the new KU Strawberry Hill um, location. Um, we also have three schools that we have behavioral health services in, um, in the, as part of the KCK Public Schools. Um, and we have um, a dental outreach program, which goes to about 30, 30 schools throughout the school year, providing dental services to kids. Um, in those standalone clinics, we offer medical services, dental and behavioral health. We also at this building have a women's health program. So we offer prenatal and um, right up into 36 weeks. And then we have a relationship with the with the University of Kansas Health System where a nurse midwife is with us and we, our nurse practitioner transfers care at 36 weeks to her, to her and she delivers then at, at the hospital. Okay. Awesome. Um, you mentioned there's a sliding scale for a lot of the patients that come in. Obviously, sliding scale. But what does the right. average patient, when they come in, they receive services, what does their out-of-pocket costs look like for them? $20. 20 bucks. 20 bucks. So the... the the vast majority of our patients fall at the, the bottom end of that, the entry end of that sliding fee, um, which is a $20 fee. And so we provide, I think, I think in 2019, we provide about $2.3 million of charitable care. That is the sliding fee part that gets written off. So if someone comes in and and we use an electronic medical record like most places and we have a it creates a bill, we're we're writing everything off that's minus that that signing fee that they pay. And so over the course of the year, that's about two point three million dollars. Wow. Hmm. So obviously you see patients here in the clinic, people that come through your doors, but you mentioned that a couple, there's three behavioral health clinics that you have in other schools. Um, How is Vibrant Health involved in other ways in the Wyandotte County community and beyond? So we are, uh, I think the biggest way we've we've engaged, so I've been here three years and I think there's a, um, Wyandotte County is a small sort of tight-knit community, especially when it comes to social service organizations. And I think that healthcare organizations have um, have struggled to really have a, have a strong presence in that network of, of other service providers. And so we've been intentional in, in the last three years about getting engaged with other organizations and seeing um, how we can help support their efforts and how um, we can partner. So... Um, if you think about the motivation for that is is twofold. So there's um, one. If you think about what happens in um, a healthcare provide with a healthcare provider and in a healthcare office, and how you impact health outcomes, our work contributes to about twenty percent of those health outcomes. And so our perspective is, if you really care, if Vibrant Health really cares about the health outcomes in Wyandotte County, then we should play in the other 80%. We should be involved. We should advocate for We should partner with. We should support policies that impact those things from education to jobs to whatever. Mm-hmm. And so our, our stance has been, how do we get engaged so we're a good partner with, um, with other organizations doing a lot of that really important work? The benefit of that is it gets our name out there a little bit more, and ideally we're we're a strong referral source from our from our partners. So we are um, the lead agency related to the um, Wyandotte County Health Department Community Health Improvement Plan. We're the lead agency related to health access. So what that means is we've got a staff person committed to helping facilitate those those meetings and those subgroups that are all working on a five year plan to improve health health outcomes in Wyandotte County. And so we're playing a key role in facilitating work done by a bunch of people. And there's probably 60 different organizations represented in that plan and in those committee work. 
um, but we we play a, an important role in helping facilitate their their efforts and and um, so I think that helps helps improve um, overall health and the direction that plan is going is, is strong. I mean, that plays perfectly into the whole theme of this episode is health and all policies. So as you see in all of your patients that walk through your door, there's a bunch of social determinants of health that we've talked about in other episodes that impact what brings a patient into your office. Um, So can you kind of touch on things that are going on here in Wyandotte, especially through that collaborative, different policy changes and discussions that are happening here in Wyandotte County and in Kansas that you've seen directly or indirectly impact your patients now or will impact them in the near future? Right. There are, are, so, so Wyandotte County is, um, is a challenging place for, for families. It has been, um, where, um, Immigration issues are a big one here. Um, we have there's a number of organizations, um, El Centro being one, doing a lot of work on, around immigration. And um, recently, the this um, White House um, introduced a new public charge policy, which won't bore you with all the nuance around that. But the gist of it is that people are people that are have immigrated here are are being essentially evaluated on their demand on public benefit and there's a lot of misunderstanding about the changes that they've made public benefit being like being medicaid, medicaid medicaid snap, SNAP. Um, WIC services those those kind of things and and the detail of the policy doesn't really matter for this purposes because they've drawn some lines that are um, that keep some things as charged and some things aren't charged against your potential citizenship. What matters is because they've they have created so much confusion, families are unenrolling their kids from Medicaid when that's not necessary and they are choosing to not accept SNAP benefits because they're worried it will lead to them not being able to seek citizenship in the future and all of those things they, it even creates concern about we're a federally qualified health center does that mean we have to report if someone's not doesn't have documentation which oh. the answer to that is no we, we don't and we don't ask that question but it but we deal with it from our families on whether they whether we are required to or not, and so it has created fear um, in how people access access our services as well as as well as others. Yeah. So you were mentioning kind of the eighty twenty breakdown of like twenty percent of health being in kind of the acute care clinic setting, and the other eighty percent being out in the community. Can you tell us a little bit about that eighty percent that you see being common themes that the patients here at Vibrant face in their day to day lives? Like what are those social determinants of health that affect them the most? Sure. So a, a lot of what um, what we see is related to, or what what impacts the ranking. So if, if you're talking about healthcare rankings, um, county healthcare rankings, which is what what that's all related to, it's health outcomes, and it evaluates um, um, prevalence of violence percentage of people that are uninsured, um, percentage of people that are graduating high school, um, percentage of employment, um, number of teenage um, births, uh, birth weight um, average, um, number of STIs reported. Like there's, there's, a, there's a hundreds of data points on this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them on the other 80% come down to issues of poverty. Mm-hmm. And what we have structured um, policy-wise and and society-wise is a is an environment where if you live in and around poverty, education is harder, jobs are harder um, to find. Um, 
every service that you can imagine that would help um, improve your um, life, improve your healthy habits are harder to come by in, in, in a community that has a high rate of poverty um, like Wyandotte County. And so um, most of those all end up when you when you unpack them on um on any of those issues, it ends up boiling down to a, a poverty issue, mm-hmm. um, and that's where we've got a we've got a lot of work to do. So, so um, Wyandotte County ranks in the top three or four in median job payment. So, if you look at this in Kansas, so if you look in the state of Kansas and where what county has the highest paying jobs, Wyandotte County is near the top. And when you look at data around where average income, Wyandotte County, if for residents of Wyandotte County, Wyandotte County is near the bottom. So what that tells you is that the jobs that exist from the Fairfax plant to um, Amazon to whatever, the high paying jobs that drive up, Cerner's got K-U-Med. five to KUMED, <laughs> five, right, good point, KUMED, Cerner's got 5,000 employees or whatever out, out west, right? So when you think about all those jobs, that, that drives up the median job at payment mm. um, to be high. But none of those people live in Wyandotte live. County. So the checks are written in Wyandotte County, but that money's not going right. to Wyandotte County. Re- residents, right. So mm-hmm. Wyandotte County residents don't have the job. Now, they don't have access to the jobs for a variety of reasons. They come back to education and so on. But but that's such a dichotomy between what jobs mm-hmm. pay in Wyandotte County on average and mm-hmm. what, um, what the median household income is, which is a direct contributor to... Um, how people live. Mm-hmm. Wow. And do you see that? I mean, that type of discrepancy between your median, excuse, median income versus household income, or what's the? It's median, median job, job income. It's job payment. Do you yeah. see that discrepancy, like in other areas of the country? Or is that pretty unique to Wyandotte County? You think? That's a good question. I I would not be the right person to speak on that. Although the the places that I've heard that data point. Um, have described it as being a unique to Wyandotte County huh. Huh. situation. That's well, that just wild. speaks to me more and more. We talk a lot about the <clears throat> county divide, uh, right. particularly in Kansas between Wyandotte and Johnson County, but that right there, I think, described it better than I could have yeah. ever come up with a way to do so. Yeah. That's yeah. really interesting. Wow. Oh, my mind is blown. Uh, so we've talked in a previous episode. We really we spent two episodes actually talking about Medicaid and what M- Medicaid expansion look like. Yes. <laughs> um, can you kind of talk about the impacts that that might have on your clinic here if we did or did not expand? That's a hot topic now. Probably will remain a hot topic for the rest of this It'll legislative be, right. session. We'll be, we'll be talking about that for a while. Yeah. Um, so the so Medicaid expansion yeah so it's interesting because I people the state some some of our state lobbyists have asked about you know what would it impact our clinic and it's hard to say because um, it's hard to put a real number to how many people come here that would be eligible for Medicaid you can calculate it a number of different ways I think the the biggest thing boils down to at least as it relates to our clinic that people who don't access care would have the opportunity and option to access um, care through us um, there's a number of people that come here already and don't have coverage that would be eligible and we would enroll them and that would be great but there's there's I think a lot more people who don't go anywhere other than maybe the ER at KU um, who don't really have options who would then be enrolled and be covered and access care um, Secretary Norman from um 
KDHE, former CMO at the health system, um, recently did a state of Kansas health um, presentation. And one of the things he said that I, I had not seen this presented in this way before, but in relation to Medicaid expansion, the top 18 states ranked by health outcomes um, have all expanded Medicaid. The states with the greatest increases in their rankings have all expanded Medicaid. The states with the greatest decreases in their rankings have not. It, it is a very, I mean, the, the data all points towards if we care about health across the state or specifically in Wyandotte County, Medicaid expansion has a massive impact on on our ability to for people to access care and improve their health. Just flat does. Mm-hmm. So I... A, a little bit unrelated. I apologize, and if we need to, you can nix this question. It's going to take too long to answer. But when, I, like, going back to your patient kind of groups, patients that you mentioned, and you said that you know, it's flipped where Medicaid expand or where excuse me, Medicaid patients have the highest reimbursement rate right. as opposed to your commercial insurance. What's going on with the commercial insurance? Why is that kind of where it is? It's just that it's that much higher for Medicaid, or do you? Is there really? Or people could be classified as underinsured, or kind of what's going on there. I was just curious how that all. Um, it's mainly um, it mainly boils down to contract leverage. I mean, we have a oh, so okay. we have a um, I don't know four percent commercial insurance out of our total population. So we're we break down fifty percent ish Medicaid, forty four percent self pay uninsured, and then four or five percent. Um, commercial one or two percent um, gotcha. um, Medicare and so it mainly it comes down to volume and leverage to be able to negotiate anything there so that's what it it isn't we my daughter comes here we have de- decent insurance of vibrant health we get the same rate okay. we, we vibrant health gets the same rate for when when she comes here that makes sense gotcha okay so I, we kind of go back to like this health and all policies concept, social determinants of health, Medicaid expansion, bring, allowing more people to access more coverage. What do you think are great ways both for current providers and future providers to kind of get more involved in that 80% piece and really make waves of change in the social determinants of health outside of their clinical roles? So I, I think there's a, a, a couple of ways to think about that. The The... Um, one and sort of the simplest is to get engaged with organizations that do that work and and you can whether that's volunteering at a school um, I don't know there's getting involved at a food bank or whatever it may be job training stuff there's there's great organizations doing a lot of work that are helping people um, you know prepare for jobs and you know all sorts of things right so that so at a sort of at a basic more one-to-one level that's a there's a number of ways to, to engage somewhere outside of your work your day job to, to to help i think the the second thing is sort of more at the system and the policy level in a deeper understanding of what our legis- legislature is where they're where they stand on different issues um as an example the state has not um, passed anything related to a safe syringe program. So we don't run a safe syringe program Mm -hmm. that the state supports in any kind of way, right? Um, The fear from the opposition is that that increases drug use. It's just not true. Um, And it shows 
data everywhere where there's safe syringe programs um, show improvements in, um, let's say, transmission of HIV, for example. Like we could actually make a difference on some of these broader health-related things, although they're not necessarily clinic things. I mean, a lot of what we do in a clinic is you all at the hospital ends up being after the after the fact. So how do we go upstream to deal with it before? And I think that's where the expertise of of students and graduates of of you know medical school and nursing school and so on can be impactful is they understand you see this stuff every day. And so thinking about and finding ways to engage in the upstream stuff um, matters. I mean it's it it's to the opposition to um, long acting reversible contraception as an example is viewed as it increases um, the opposition. It, view, it increases premarital sex. It increases teen birth is what it increases. And so if we if we get the right position um, and understanding of those kinds of issues, you start to decrease some of the things that people, that challenge, you know, a, a teen mom, the likelihood of them living in poverty, like skyrocket. I don't know what this mm-hmm. is, but it's like an astronomical percentage goes up. The likelihood that 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 mom and the kid live in live their whole lives in poverty goes up tremendously. So let's maybe let's work on preventing that. And I think there's I think you all and and you know peers like you that that are in this space have a way stronger voice than than even somebody like me. Well, I'm I'm I sit in a CEO chair. I don't have a medical degree or a clinical background. So y- your voice to legislators and policymakers is way stronger. Um, and so I think there's I think there's two ways. How do you do it on a one to one basis that just feels good and makes a difference in individual or groups' lives? But then how do you then looking for ways to engage in real policy change mm-hmm. because you're not going to prevent the stuff that you see every day in clinic without mm-hmm. going upstream on it. Mm-hmm. I think last question. To, do we have any others for him? Um, yeah, I think speaking of moving up and downstream, one question that I think if we could maybe just get a concrete example to paint a clearer picture for some listeners, just how do some aspects of public policy have trickle-down effects on patients that Vibrant serves? Like, could you give us just a kind of specific example, like if there were a change to like SNAP or WIC or some social program, like how do you see that affecting patients? So uh, let's just, yeah, I mean, WIC is a good good example. So Can, and WIC stands w- for women, women, infants, women, infant, children. Yes. Okay. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so that prov- that program provides services when a woman is pregnant and then certainly afterwards, right? And there's there's um, lots of support. It's a great program. If, if, you, if a policy changes on who can access that service, um, you're, you're immediately creating a situation where, where pregnant women aren't looking for and finding and accessible to services that they need to help make sure that they have a healthy delivery and a healthy baby. So you're you're starting. You're you're risking what's the birth weight in, um, in your community for one of those big indicators of county 
right, health. correct. Um, which is actually one of the one of the few indicators where Kansas overall is not as terrible as they are in many other indicators. But those corn fed um, babies, right, Jeff? That's exactly. <laughs> well, I wonder if the average gets. What <laughs> do we have? Too well, low in some areas and way yeah, too high in other areas. Right. So, so, so I've, I've been flipping through this this document, and I'll I'll forward you this so you, you all I think you all would find it and interesting. This is health. the state the state of Kansas health from Secretary Norman, and and mm. he's got some data points in here around where we where we rank, but. Um, low birth weight. So there's a lot of things like access to dentists were number 38, mental health providers were 35, preventable hospitalizations were 32, primary care physicians were 32. We're in the bottom half of cancer, cardiovascular, and diabetes deaths. We're in the bottom half of frequent frequent mental distress. We're in the bottom half of infant mortality. We're in the bottom half of premature deaths in years lost before 75. However, we're number 14 in low birth weight. I know why that county is not not there mm-hmm. at seven. It is significantly higher. So to your point, I think it is like there are some counties that are doing pretty well, and then there's some counties that are, are way off the charts. And yeah. so 14 is not a, not an, as bad as we are in other other places. But the the WIC service is an example. If you if you restrict who can access, you're you're immediately starting or at least challenging the start of kids' lives and mom. And so um, you get moms accessing care later in pregnancy. You get people. Um, you know, births happening without quite as quite as healthy as as we'd like. So, mm-hmm. um, and then just they, I mean, they provide formula, they provide diapers, they provide a lot of things to, to help families that have, have a newborn. And if if you're limiting that, it that's a dramatic impact on how how a kid starts. Right. Last question for you. So you kind of talked about um, getting involved early on in those more individual one on one opportunities for that 80% social determinants of health. Um, We have a lot of student listeners, a lot of our peers that we've harassed into actually listening to this podcast. Um, (laughs) Incentivized with free coffee. (laughs) Incentivized is a much nicer word. Good job. Um, If there's any volunteer or clinical exposure opportunity, anything that could help you guys here at Vibrant or any of your partners that you would like to get out to our peers through this not only the podcast, but our social media and blog. Um, we'd love to help spread the okay. word for you. We are, as you can imagine, we are challenged by um, opportunities to engage in clinic stuff just from the nature of the privacy of it. But I think there are some, I guess I would say more administrative or or frankly, some of our outreach things where volunteers are would be welcome. So we struggle with getting to all of the number of... As, as an example, we struggle to get to all of the number of health fairs where we where we should be providing screenings and mm-hmm. um, and just have a presence. And so, um, you know, that's an area where we've looked for how do we find volunteer or you know a core of volunteers that could we could throw it out to on a on a Monday or Tuesday that's Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning or whatever and and um, get people involved. And and similarly, um, I think. I think the, there's a handful of other safety net clinics, and certainly the the JDoc program at mm-hmm. um, Celsius Boulevard. Um, but but I could send you some ideas. Perfect. Sure. Yeah. Perfect. I don't think. Do you guys have anything else? No, I don't. I, I just think it's. I, I I just was thinking about this last night. Actually, we had a patient who came in. You know, JDoc a lot of acute care. Obviously, you have your kind of regular programs, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand just kind of how that whole system operates with difference between a safety net clinic and an FQHC. So I know if you could just real quickly maybe answer that just to kind of 
when you think about, and I can kind of give you a better question that we can actually, uh, you know, put in a recording, but, um, you know, so a lot of students see a lot of patients at JDOC who then get referred to a more um, permanent primary care setting, um, some of which FQHCs, some of which are safety net clinics. Could you boil down kind of the difference there and what that looks like? For the most part, um, I'll try to generalize this a little bit, but the, for the most part, FQHCs are going to have a more rigid um, access point because of our guidelines. So the sliding fee, as an example, um, at some safety net, and I, I don't actually know the answer on some of them, what, how their front desk works, but but I know, at least in general, you may have a flat rate that everybody everybody pays 10 bucks, where versus we need proof of income and we need some background information that we're required to ask for and get to be able to put someone on the sliding fee discount. Um, and so it just, it's a little, it can be a little bit different and, and somewhat um, administrative on the front end that, that does create a challenge for serving patients, um, to, to be fair. But so depending on which clinic they would be referred to or would be going to, they may have a different experience on the front end. Now, now like the patient experience, there we have, especially in Wyandotte County, we have really good um, clinics of all stripes. And so you're, you're seeing, you know, board certified doctors and nurse practitioners that are, that are good. So that aspect of it is, is probably very, very similar from place to place, but the front end piece would be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing, you know, you said something there that prompted a thought, if you don't, I'll That's share right. and you can delete later. Um, the, I think the, the other thing that your experience in JDOC and, and you're thinking about these policy changes and, and, and what impact it has on people, especially low-income families, is important. I think there's always an opportunity for people to step back and think about the actual day-to-day challenges that these that families face, that people face to just to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's as simple as um, I, I'll, I'll just. I grew up in a in a household where my parents were both married. My parents are still married. My mom. Uh, when I was a kid, worked part-time and was done by the time I was out of school, so she picked me up every day from school. If I had a doctor visit, she took the time off work, wasn't a big deal. No, like, there's no hassle in that. But that's not a huge amount of the population's world. And I think it's easy, especially um, depending on our, our backgrounds, to think that well, why can't they just get here on time? Mm-hmm. And it's just, and well, because they can't, I, because they took the bus, the bus was late. They took three buses. It took 45 minutes. They had to take time off work. They had to go to school and get their kid, whatever it may like. It's just not that simple. And, and I think it's, um, it's imperative on the providers, both specifically in terms of the person providing care, but also the organizations to, to think about what are all the issues that are impacting just that experience to get to the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it's just it's not always that that simple. And so I, th- I think the JDoc experience is a good one, um, but it's a good reminder of to think a little bit deeper on what's going on with with this person that just walked in and what did their day look like, what did their week look like, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there's a certain amount of compassion that it's. I know there's there's a lot of research at KU at least around. Um, well, I know in the school of medicine like. Are you more compassionate after going through your training or not? You know, I think it's an interesting one. But, you know, when you think about there's there's some things that you can't really teach in a classroom. And I think understanding those things is probably one of them. Um, 
you know, having patients with uh, the struggle with housing insecurity, what that looks like, um, or transportation, like you mentioned, taking the bus. I think that that's something that a lot of students maybe don't understand. And so really appreciate you kind of explaining that. And that's hope that, yeah, absolutely. you know, with this podcast, you know, with JDoc, with volunteering, Safety Net Clinic, um, helping with Vibrant, like that over time we would develop more compassionate, you know, better practitioners. And just expanding, we, in a lot of our clinical cases are fake cases that we're given to learn sure. from. <laughs> we all have to, we have to develop differential diagnoses. So what could all the possible things that could, what could possibly be wrong with this patient? And most of the time we're, we're going back to our strict science driven differential diagnoses that we learned about in the last two weeks because anything beyond that we for sure have forgotten already but social determinants of health are never they're less included in our differential and I think that's something that our curriculum is trying to change and I'm sure you can speak to nursing as well is like you're saying thinking outside of the box of those the actual medical things the physiological things that could be wrong with you and start thinking maybe 500 feet back, oh, well, you live by a power plant that has horrible emissions. Of course you can't breathe at night. Right. And maybe well, get an air filter, and then we don't have to put you on these other drugs. Right. We can fix Are you patching upstream. a problem that's not? Yeah. So mm-hmm. the other, the other, another thing that I would, and you, you all may talk about these in your in your courses and studying and all that, but the but is, is there's increasing research around the impact of trauma and toxic stress on our physical mm-hmm. um on our physical nature, especially as we grow up. So if, if I would recommend a book to you called The Deepest Well, and it is, um, it, it is written by a, a woman who's now the, um, I'm gonna forget her name at this specific point, but but she's now the, surgeon, the first Surgeon General of, of California. And the, the idea is it's around, ad, ACEs is the acronym, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there's usually a list in the in the survey of like 10. Did you have a parent that was an alcoholic? Did you have a parent that was in prison? Did your parents get divorced? Was there physical violence in your household? All the, And it's a yes or no. It's a, it is yes, you did, and no, you didn't. And the more yeses you have, the more aces you have. And it and at, at a younger age, the more traumatic that is to your um, to your life, and it creates toxic stress in our brains that changes our physiology. So there are there's direct research that shows them if someone it has had six aces by the time they are 18 the likelihood of them having creating uh ha- having heart disease in the future or cancer goes up dramatically mm-hmm. and so they're they're physical manifestations of this you know early life trauma that play out in people at 40 45 whatever age and and so i think they're i mean I, it it is a it is a it would be a worthwhile read to just get another perspective on mm-hmm. on all of the things like you describe on what's going on what's the 500 foot level of what's going on with this patient and and my experience has been once you've and again I don't I don't interact with any patients day to day at least around their healthcare um, or on their health but but I th- we have we think about it and talk about it organizationally because once you like once you see it l- described you can't unsee it like it starts to be it starts to be something you notice in your own life and in your friends and in ev- it's everywhere yeah. once you realize the impact that trauma can have on behavior and physical um, health in the future it you can't not see it wow mm-hmm. that's incredible and we're quickly running out of time but I have one more thing that I need to pick your brain on and this might be too weedy so if we need to get it out that's fine that's okay I've been 
in the weeds all day. <laughs> so one of the big things that um, I had when I was working out in D.C., it was um, teaching health center reauthorization. And so we had a lot of different groups that would come in and advocate for us, for my boss to vote in favor of reauthorizing these THCs. And um, What an acronym. I know. Mm. And, um, you know, they were obviously describing what they were because we don't have any in Kansas, or at least we didn't at the yeah, time. I think that's correct. So teaching health centers are these new way of implementing residency programs, or it's a different type of residency program. So instead of it being in the walls of KU, um, your primary care residents are out in in like places like Vibrant. So they would come here, they would get their clinical experience here, but on top of that, their residency would include training in the different food banks that are around the area, um, different like violent, I don't, they're just, Violence it, prevention yes, it's, it's, all of these things right. are played into, they're incorporated in your residency training. And I just wanted to hear your insight if you've heard of any rumblings of these maybe happening because every single time they come in, I'd be like, why the hell don't we have any of these? That seems like a prime the, place for them to exist is in Kansas. Yeah. So, um, it's a, a good question. The the I I'm, I could be wrong. There is a KU partnered residency in Salina that is, I believe, in partnership with a, a clinic. But I I could be totally butchering that. So there may be even if they're not getting federal funding, I think they operate in that sort of model where there's a residency in Salina mm-hmm. that's that's removed from the the residency at the university. Gotcha. Um, they may not may or may not be getting the federal funding. Um, so so. Um, that just for listeners to be clear on our whether we're right or wrong on how many I think there there at least it's happening with KU. Um, I think it's a great program. It has not received much additional federal dollars to get it off the ground, so it yeah. is a really expensive program to run. Um, there was an application opportunity for funding last year that we looked at, um, but decided against. And part of it is, it is a it is a really heavy lift to get it off the ground. Um, mm-hmm. You have to have a residency program director, and you got to have a lot of physical space, and um, there's a lot of requirements to make it work. Um, but I think there is also a lot of interest in Wyandotte County about creating one. Um, Gotcha. Okay. That's good to know. (laughs) That's exciting. Thank you so much for taking the time to impart some of your wisdom on us here. (laughs) Yes. This was wonderful. So very helpful. I don't think we have any other questions. Thanks for thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Tune in on April 13th for a dose of social determinants in clinical practice. I'm Jack. I'm Rachel. I'm Kate. And And this this is is Health Yeah! Recording and production for this podcast was done by Health Yeah! in collaboration with KUMC, Department of Family Medicine Research Division. Thoughts and opinions are our own and not a reflection of the University of Kansas Medical Center. Intro and outro music used for this podcast is Southern Dreaming, performed by The Sheepdogs.